Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us today, that you'd build up your body, the church, uh, that we would become more and more a people who reflect the truth of the gospel in the way that we live, that every part of our lives would be gospel formed. We pray in the name of Jesus and we pray that by the Spirit's power it would come apart, uh, come, come to be in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, like I said, we're continuing on in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, from verse 25, which uh, uh, we had very reliably read to us an extra two verses than had been intended because I changed them during the week and didn't tell the person who put the slides together. Um, no, but there's, this is a, a passage, you might remember last week if you were here, um, Chapter 4 was the turning point moving from kind of gospel exposition to gospel application. Uh, So in chapter 1 to 3, we had uh, this is the gospel, you know, the big picture of salvation and the truth of it. And then in chapters 4 to 6, we get the application of the gospel. And and that began last week, but this week it it really becomes much more fast and thick. Uh, So so you remember, if you were here last week, that... um, uh, 1 to 3, chapter 1 to 3, we get one command in the whole lot. And then in chapter 4 to 6, we get 40 commands. And that didn't really start last week. Last week, it started to be applied, but even then, there weren't really commands in there. But this time, we get a stack of them thrown at us. And there's some risks that we have to be aware of as we step into a passage of the Bible like this, uh, that some of our blinders might come on and we might read it wrong. Uh, There's really two. Uh, Risk number one is that we go, well, we're saved by grace alone. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically just going to focus on the bits where he says things like, I'm a beloved child, and, and says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And I'm going to basically ignore the rest because that feels a bit legalistic. And that's a mistake because it's in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> and we are missing truth and applied truth that's given to us for a really good reason. Uh, the other risk, of course, is that we do the exact opposite. Uh, and this is probably the easier one. You get to a part of the Bible like this, and all you see is the commands, the be angry and do not sin, the let the thief no longer steal, and so on and so forth. And we, and we go, okay, all right, so these are the things I have to do. You know, we, we've got to the point of it at last. You know, we've done three and a bit chapters of Ephesians, and it's all basically been, well, you know, this is a great truth, and that's a great truth. But really what we've been coming to is this, the, the kind of how do I do it? Uh, and we, we fail to realise that this isn't about us. This is primarily about God and what he has done. And all of the what we do is purely a, a result of, a response to what he has done. And we need to see that in this. And so the way we're going to see that in this passage today is that this passage itself actually contains both of those elements of the, the truth and the results of the truth. He harks back to the truths of the first chapters of the book. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the truth bits first, which is the beginning and the end of our passage. Uh, and then we're, going to, we, we, we're doing the truth sandwich and we're going to have the application that in between. We're going to hit that afterwards. Okay? Is that clearish? Yeah. Uh, so uh, at the opening, um, before we get to the, the first part of the truth, Paul reminds us. He reminds us again of the importance of being transformed by the truth about Jesus in community in the church. Uh, and, and he says, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. Now, do you hear an echo of something we've already heard just last week here, right? Just, just last week we saw speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head of the church. It, this isn't, isn't just a call to general honesty, like we said then. 
Certainly to know Christ should inspire honesty in us and should inspire love in us, but this is a call to be a speaker of gospel truth into one another's lives, a gospel speaker. The dynamic uh, we discussed last week is what's coming out again here. We are speaking the truth about Jesus lovingly into every aspect of each other's lives and so being transformed to be like Christ. This is how we're transformed. This is how we become like Jesus. But also, it's how God is working out his intention to unite everything in Christ. This is more than just a model for personal change, do you see? Uh, it, is a, it is a model for personal change, but it's more than that as well. What we've seen uh, th- thus far shows us that there are three aspects to how this gospel transformation affects us. It gives us, it, it gives us three things. It gives us a foundation sure and steady. It gives us a a method of gospel transformation and it gives us a meaning in our lives well beyond what we could have ever hoped for for ourselves. First, we get get a a sure foundation for being transformed. Where before we knew Christ, sorry, before we knew Christ, our lives were founded on other things, on shaky foundations, things that could fall away. And if, uh, you know, you want evidence of that, just look at the world at the moment. Look at, a, look at a, a really hard-nosed liberal supporter today, if you want to see what it looks like to have your, your uh, foundations shaken away when you're trusting in something that could be removed. We were all like that in various different ways before Christ. There were things that produced bad things in our lives very often, especially when they were taken away. Uh, now, though, we are founded on a relationship with Christ and on the truth about Christ And that is the one firm, unchanging foundation for building a good life upon. Second, we get get glorious method for the whole of the Christian life. This is the the working out of the principle that we've been seeing throughout this book so far for a few weeks now, probably about a month. This idea of increasingly trusting the truth about Jesus as it applies to every part of my life and so being transformed by the gospel. This is the method. This is how it happens. We apply truth. We change our lives as a result of truth about Jesus. Uh, It must be said, the truth is so important. What we believe isn't just a list and it's not just a doctrinal statement. Doctrine is not just one of those famous old theologians said, and I can't remember which one, Doctrine is not a matter of the, the tongue, but of the life. That's what doctrine's about. But then third, we get, we get something more. And this too we saw last week. Uh, this goes beyond a personal reality for ourselves. In Christ, our lives gain glorious meaning and purpose. And our lives together as the body of Christ gain glorious meaning and purpose. Because as we become his likeness, as we speak the truth in love into one another's lives, and our lives together as the body of Christ grow to be like Christ, then God is displaying through us his ultimate wisdom, his great mystery hidden for ages. A church which builds itself up and is united by speaking the truth about Jesus in love to one another becomes a display to the people around us 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It becomes a display to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It becomes a display to the heavenly powers, to Satan and his hordes and to the, all of the angels of God's great wisdom working out that he will unite all things in Christ and he's working that out through us as this happens. A church which builds itself up and is united by speaking the truth about Jesus in love to one another becomes a display to everyone of what Jesus is like and what God's wisdom is. And for these reasons, this theme of gospel application to our lives, it rules the remainder of this letter. Paul's going to spend the rest of the letter speaking the truth about Jesus to us, bringing it to bear on different aspects of our lives as he speaks love, uh, speaks truth lovingly to us. Truth, uh, sorry, church, uh, can we see that what we believe really matters? You know, sometimes, sometimes we fall for a version of Christianity that says it's kind of just this airy thing where, where it's, you know, there's no concrete truths to it. It's just kind of this loose relational thing and there is relationship in it. Uh, but in the same way that if I was in a relationship my wife, with my wife and she didn't know anything about me that something would be wrong, similarly, if we are in a relationship with God and we don't know him, we don't know about him, then something's really wrong. Uh, one, of our, one of our recommended books on the site for this, uh, for this series was, was Finally Alive by Gloria Furman. Um, I was doing a little bit of reading there this week, and, and I love what she's got to say about this. I'm just going to read it to you. She says, What we believe concerning doctrine determines the way we respond to God, to His church, and this world, which in its present system is marked out for destruction. Doctrine matters. When you're reading the news and can't stop weeping. It matters when your neighbour tells you she's pregnant and the next time you see her, she says, I took care of the problem. It matters when your husband comes home from the office early with a cardboard box full of his pictures and lunch dishes from work. It matters when you're facing another evening of free time and you feel restless. It matters when your prayers are answered and the door to share your faith swings wide open, when your new medication doesn't do anything, when you get a raise, when your laptop crashes, when you're shopping at the grocery store, when your child rolls his eyes at you, when you're laughing so hard your face hurts and when you get a phone call you never thought you'd receive. In every moment of life, doctrine matters. From the global concerns that affect everyone on this planet to the minutiae of our vaporous lives, doctrine matters. And in this passage today, at the start and the finish, like we said, um, Paul points us back to the great doctrine, the great gospel truths which transform our lives. Uh, and so in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. And here's the gospel reason, for we are members one of another. He's harking back here to something he said right back in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He said, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. This is, 
This is the body that Paul is reminding us that we are members of when he says you are members one of another. So we act in a new way towards one another first because when we, became, when we came to faith in Jesus, we came into Christ. And an integral part of having come into Christ is coming into the body of Christ, his church. The idea of a, a Christian who, who loves Christ and doesn't love the church would have been a really foreign thing to Paul. So our actions toward one another are driven by the truth that we have been brought into Christ and will therefore love the members of his body. But then at the end of the passage, right down at the end there, we get two deep gospel reasons in addition to that, to live out the actions of love, uh, to live out a life of love. Paul ends the passage in, in chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, and he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When Paul talks about that love there, what he's talking about is a summary of the Christian life, the love that he's calling us to. He's saying, like, so all of the commands that he's going to give in between are summarized now in this love. We walk in love. Uh, our love, all of our actions toward one another, are driven by the love of the Father and the love of Christ for us. Paul says, you are beloved children. Imitate his love towards one another. You see it there. He says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, so walk in love towards one another. When you look at the people around you in the body of Christ, this is to be the thing that defines your actions towards them. It's to define how I treat Mark Anderson, you know. It's, it's to define how James and I speak to each other. It's to define our relationships as a body. And it, it's, that's so important to say, isn't it? Because it's so easy to be defined by other things. You know, the, 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 the standout, blatant, obvious one is their actions towards me, right? It's so easy to be, like, if... if um, if Malcolm here comes to me and, and says something blunt and rude and then storms off, it is very easy for me to be defined in my actions towards him by how he has been towards me, isn't it? Like, like the world, everything in us, that aside from the spirit, would say, you know, you should get back at him for that. You have a right to be grumpy about this and be mad at him. It's also easy to be defined in my relationship with you, in our relationships with each other, by our life circumstances, by the pressures that are pressing on us each day, by a hard week, by a hard month, by a hard year, to go, you know what? I don't need to be patient with these people anymore. I've just got too much on my plate. It's, it's easy to be defined by my preconceived ideas about you and about us. These things... These things are part of what he talked about last week when he talked about ignorance and the darkness of mind that we used to live in before Christ. We have a better truth that orientates our action towards each other now. We have a sure foundation for how we relate to one another in the church. We remember these three things. We remember we are fellow members of one body, the body of Christ. So I will walk in love towards these people.
We remember we are fellow children, beloved children of the Father. So I'll walk in love towards these people. And we remember we, Christ gave himself up for them and for me. I can do nothing but love them because of his great love for us. And now what we're going to do, like I said, is we're going to uh, dive headlong into the moral teaching bit in between. Uh, that sits you know, just between those two gospel foundations. And we're going to connect the dots of how these new ways of living are driven by these truths of the gospel. And we're going to follow Paul's lead and connect how we see in the love and the sacrifice of Christ, like he spoke about there in 5 verse 2, the way in which we are to live. So first, verse 26 to 27, Paul speaks to our anger. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm yet to meet someone who hasn't at some point struggled with anger. Um, we're getting grumpy, we're getting wrathful. I mean, parents, do you relate? I'm just, just saying, like, kids can grate on this at times. And it's not just us. Every person struggles with anger that I've ever met. Varying amounts, varying ways, but it's always there. And so Paul turns to this first, not by mistake. And, and it almost shouldn't need to be said that our approach to anger is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sure. Because there is a God who is just, and so injustice should inspire feelings of anger within us, shouldn't it? Yet we were the unjust ourselves. We were the enemies, we were the sinners, we deserved God's anger and yet we have received mercy in Jesus. And that orientates how we approach this. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that affects our approach to anger. Deserving anger, we got undeserved love. What's natural for us when we approach the issue of anger, I think, uh, is, is that we immediately assume then that anger is done away with in the gospel. Like that we can skip verse 26 and 27. We, we know what it says. We say, it says, you know, we don't get angry anymore because we have the gospel. But the funny thing is, that's not what it says. Um, the reason we think that, we think of anger and we associate it with unrighteous anger and we associate it with the bad actions that come out of our anger so often. Whether righteous or unrighteous, we often sin in response to anger. Uh, and, and so we think, you know, Jesus must get, away, get rid of all of that, right? Uh, it's not what we get. What we get is a fine balance. Because just a few verses later, Paul will exclude an unrighteous form of anger altogether. But here, here, the easiest way to read the text is that he gives us these four commands. And the first command is this, be angry. The second one is, and do not sin, but we'll get to that. There is an important place for anger in the Christian life. But because the tendency of our former selves is to become bitter, to overflow anger into sin, he gives these three extra commands that, that fill this out. He says, be angry and do not sin is so easy for the anger of man, even righteous anger, to result in simple actions, isn't it? 
You ever, you ever got angry about something that you know was, you know, that's a wrong thing and it's right for me to be angry about this and then you did something about it and then you were like, that was the wrong response to the situation though. Like, that, this is simple for us to do. It is so inherent to our old way of living that our response to injustice, for instance, is revenge. Isn't it? So he says, be angry, but be careful. Be angry and do not sin, because that's a place where you're going to be tempted to. Then he gives us a timeline. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Basically, don't let your anger stew. Don't let it sit there undealt with. Deal with it quickly. Unresolved anger does lead to bitterness and sin. If you just hold it and chew on it, that's not what God wants you to do with it. He wants you to bring it to him. He wants you to put it in the light. You know, if it's with a brother or a sister, he wants you to go and talk about it with them. He wants you to resolve that with them. James says, he says in chapter 1, he says, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Last on anger, Paul gives us this really, really strong warning. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. If we stew our anger, sometimes we think of that as just kind of, uh, well, this might be harming to myself. But he's not actually even just saying this to us individually. He's saying this, remember, in a passage that's speaking to the church corporately about our unity as a people. And he says, don't give this opportunity to the devil to divide the body of Christ by clinging on to your anger. Here's what we should see. There is a place for anger in the Christian life. It is completely different, though, to the place that it used to have in our lives before we knew Christ. To understand righteous anger, how that looks, uh, and, and what that means, we do what Paul told us to do, right? We remember Christ who laid himself down for us, and we look to him, and we see how he practiced this. And what we find is that Jesus was angry, but he did not sin. Mark chapter 3. You know, there's, there's a very scant list of moments in the Gospels where you actually had the word anger associated with Jesus. Uh, Mark chapter 3 is one of them. We, we encounter Jesus in the synagogue. And I love this situation because it gives us so much insight on this. Jesus is in the synagogue and a trap has been laid for him intentionally. Uh, the, the, the religious leaders have set it up so that a guy with a, with a deformity, a withered hand, is there in the synagogue and when Jesus is going to come. So they're waiting to see, because it's the Sabbath, they're waiting to see, will he heal him? And if he heals him, we can accuse him of working on the Sabbath. It'll be great. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me, anger would probably be one of my logical responses. And like, I'd probably just like kick somebody and then run out or something, because I'm not very good at fights. But <laughs> what we read is this. We read, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Do you see how the anger of Jesus is different to what we think of when we think of anger? Let's, let's make three quick observations. I know we're spending a long time on anger, but it is a serious thing. The anger of Jesus is mixed with grief. Jesus' anger, even at people who were literally attempting to trap him, 
is still affected by love for them. He is grieved by their hardness of heart and he wishes it to end. He wishes them to turn. Number two, the anger that Jesus has is directed at hardness of heart. Christians, we have often gained a bit of a reputation uh, for being angry with sinners uh, and there's a sense in which that can be right. There's a sense in which when a horrendous atrocity is committed against someone, you go, that angers me because that's not right, that's not how God made this to be. But it's interesting, isn't it, when we look at the ministry of Jesus and look for the times when he was angry with people that really it's, it's not the greed of the tax collectors that he's angry at and it's not the, the promiscuity of the prostitutes that he's angry at. Are those things still sin? Sure, of course they are. Will God judge sin? You betcha he will. But Jesus' heart towards sinners is love and a longing to see them saved and transformed, not anger that they have sinned. You see, the cross transforms how we respond to sin because we have received grace in Jesus. We can give it to others. Third, the anger of Jesus is the minor note, not the major note of his ministry. The anger of Jesus was not the majority note of what he did. This is, this is incredible when you consider the opposition and the sin that Jesus faced on like a day-by-day basis. And yet, anger was not dominant in his ministry. You know, when he's being dragged to the cross, anger is not the tone we get. When he's being trapped, even then when he is angry, anger mixed with grief at their hardness of heart. There's a place for righteous anger, but it can be so easy to act like that place is everywhere and so justify all of my anger as righteous anger. We see that a lot. You know, Jesus' anger, to be completely frank, was almost, in fact, I think possibly all of Jesus' anger was at religious hypocrisy. When you, when you look for times when he was specifically angry, you know, when he was driving out money changers from the temple, when he was angry at the people trying to trap him in the synagogue, when he tells off the religious authorities for their hypocrisy, that's what he gets angry at. You've got to be careful of that because that's, that's a thing that happens in the church a fair bit. Let's move on. The next one he addresses is, our gr- is, is greed and he turns greed to generosity in Christ. Paul addresses specifically, he addresses the thief. This is verse 28. And, and it's tempting to skip over this because we kind of, we get to it and we assume, you know, this isn't something that speaks to many of us, not many of us are thieves, um, but, but two things. First, if this was a problem in the church of Ephesus uh, and the surrounding churches there, uh, far be it from us to assume that we'd never have someone in our church who struggles with theft as a sin. Uh, and second, Paul, <laughs> this speaks to us beyond the issue of the theft. The command here speaks to all of us about greed and generosity. Church, we follow an incredibly generous saviour, don't we? Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, writes 2 Corinthians, he says this, he says, 
You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul speaks to the thief and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with, the, with anyone in need. Can we see that the generosity of Jesus towards us drives us away from selfishness? Away from theft, yes, but more than that, the generous saviour transforms our work so that we work to have something to share with others. The gospel dynamic of the one who had everything but gave everything leads us to use what we have in love for others like he has loved us. So even, sorry, so often we see our money as our money, don't we? And we see our house as our house. And, and the Bible is really clear. These things are a gift given to you for the sake of blessing others. For the glory of God. They're given so that you might display the generosity of the Saviour by being generous. Look at, look at the ministry of Jesus. He who had equality with God, but did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but taken the form of a servant. He who could say, uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. The King of the universe could say that. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In love, he poured out everything generously for us. Third, he speaks to our language and our speech. And he turns corrupting talk into uplifting speech in Christ. Paul turns to our manner of talk and he's, he's spoken so much already about the need to speak gospel words into each other's lives and that's certainly present here again but here we get more of a focus on the manner of how we talk to one another as well as, as well as well as the content he says let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear that word corrupting there is, uh, is actually the same word that you might use if you had a fish and you left that fish out for three days, they would have, they would have used that Greek word to describe your fish. It is a corrupting fish. It's a rot word. <laughs> you know, think of the middle layer of your composter. That's, that's, that's what the kind of speech we're talking about here. Paul's saying the gospel changes the heart that we have when we speak to one another. And so our heart isn't to speak words that bring down our heart towards one another is to speak words that build up. This is, this is about a disposition to, to build up one another. It's more than just your words, do you see? My, my heart towards you and our heart towards each other is to build each other up. Even if we have to speak a hard word, this doesn't exclude speaking a hard word into the life of a brother or sister's sin, uh, into their sin. Our, our heart 
in that must still be to build them up. Our heart is for restoration. Our heart is to see them turned by the Spirit to trust them more and thus be built up into the likeness of Christ. Paul, Paul gives us a, a hard reminder here for the moments when we're tempted to, to speak a word, to bring down a brother or a sister. As we seek to grieve them, we also grieve the Spirit of God. We grieve God in us, the one who dwells in us. Think about, think about the words of Jesus on the cross. Now, is there a more tempting possible situation in which to speak a word to bring people down than when they are nailing you to a cross of wood? Think and not. Faced with the most sinful moment that would ever be, he uses his words to provide for others. He provides John to Mary as a son to care for her. He cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Over those who are crucifying him. Think of his words to Peter. Peter, who denied him three times, close by where Jesus could see. Even though he'd been warned that this would happen, still he went right into it, gung-ho, pride showing and and. And then Jesus sees him after the resurrection and he doesn't say, you blew it, Peter. Come on, I told you that would happen. <sighs> no, he says, Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. He calls him back in to serve and to follow with grace and forgiveness. He built him up. He restored him. Is this our heart for those around us, for the body of Christ? Is our heart to follow the Saviour who speaks a word of forgiveness to us? Is our heart toward one another to speak words that build up? Finally, verses 31 and 32, Paul closes out this part of his teaching on the life of the church with, with two lists. He gives us a negative list and a positive list. Um, the first one, you might notice, it works from the inside out. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Do you see this progression from the heart to the tongue there? Bitterness, wrath and anger are matters of the heart. This, this is the unrighteous kind of anger. Uh, and it, it has no love for others. It's not grieved by hardness of heart. It wants to kick hardness of heart. It's just angry and out to get them. If we let that in, that bitterness, it, it works outwards in, in clamour and slander is the way the ESV puts it. When Paul says clamour, he means, it's, it's the same word you'd use for a shouting match. He, he means harsh speech and slander just means derogatory speech. He says, neither of those have a place in the church. And then he gives us this second list. It's the opposite. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And even in this bit, he can't avoid the gospel foundations. 
as we close out this passage, Paul again returns to the explicit gospel, which is being applied to our actions. The reason we won't be bitter, angry or wrathful and won't speak harshly and slanderously about one another and to one another is that these actions are opposite to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's action towards us. God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ forgave me. How could I be anything but kind in response to that? How could I be anything but tender-hearted when I have been forgiven so much? Let me, let me close today with a, with a couple of invitations. First, you might hear all this and you might think, you know, that sounds amazing, sounds great. Um, I'd love to live this life of righteousness and of loving anger, not harsh bitterness. And, and I'd love to live a life that's generous and, and is gracious in speech. That's, that sounds like a good life to me. I just, I, I want an upright, like, upright life like that, but I just can't imagine that that's actually possible for me. I can't change that way. And, and the truth is, here's, here's the ringer, you can't. This is the whole point. We can't change ourselves. It is the Saviour who changes us and by the truth of his saving work continues to transform us in the community of Christ. And the call isn't do all these things and then God will accept you. But rather accept that nothing you can do will cause him to accept you. Nothing you can do will save you and know that if you trust in Jesus, he'll save you anyway. This walk is the result of him. It's not the way of getting to him. If you've been kicking under the understanding that you just need to get good enough for God, then repent and believe and be saved. And believer, you might hear all this and think, I have such a long way to go still. There's a health in thinking that. And it's okay. We all do. God's not going to reject you for being slow. His love is guaranteed in Christ, not in your actions. But guys, let's step into this. Let's spur each other to believe the truth that transforms us rather than the darkened old ways of our minds. Let's, let's encourage each other and call each other to account and speak the truth and love into one another's lives. You know, when we see each other's anger, when we see each other's speech, when we see each other's greed, let's speak the truth lovingly to one another there. It might sound like a hard walk we're describing. Like this is just a bit too much to call us to, but I, I'm fully with old Gloria Furman uh, here. She says this, she says, it takes a little bit for your eyes to adjust to the sunlight in the morning, but walking in the glorious light is the best part of waking up. This is, this is a life of joy. Why don't I pray for us? And then we're going to shift into a time of communion. Jesus, thank you for your incredible love. We pray that we would know the love of Christ that transforms us.
We pray that you would, um, yeah, that you would be showing us the love of the one who laid down his life for us, the love of the Father who has brought us in as beloved children, and that we would be lovingly living out the life of a body, the body of Christ in this world, and so displaying your glory. Lord, we confess we're a people who struggle with anger, with greed, with selfishness, with bitterness, with slander, with clamour. Those things are not fully absent from us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us the light of the gospel and do away with them. We thank you for your patience. We pray that you would lead us to walk in your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.